Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, was an adult the first time he saw a Bible. The Bibles were, in, were very rare back in those days. And he picked up the Bible, turned it to somewhere around the middle, and started reading. And his soul began to sing. He'd never seen anything like that. He was, he was his heart, his pulse was, was racing, and he was, he was reading about this suspenseful story of God working in a sovereign way to cause his will to come about. And that day changed Martin Luther's life. And because it was Martin Luther, it changed your life too. What was he reading? Samuel. First and second Samuel is really one book. He was reading Samuel. And we're going to spend 12 weeks surveying and looking at this great book that is a hinge of history. There aren't very many, but this is a hinge of history. After this epoch of time, the world is never the same. You can't give a survey of history, Western history or Eastern history, without including the nation of Israel. And up until Samuel, there is no nation. They're just a ragtag group of tribes that are trying to get along. Samuel is the beginning, the birth of that nation. And for, the, for Israel to become a nation, they had multiple transitions to make to be able to be what God had meant them to be. They had to go from, again, loosely affiliated that didn't get along 12 tribes, and they had to become a united kingdom. They had to move from judges to kings to a monarchy. They had to leave Shiloh, the place of their spiritual focus, to a capital city that could be defended and, and it was glorious, Jerusalem. They had to leave the tabernacle, a temporary mobile worship center, to a spectacular temple on Mount Moriah. All that happens in the book of Samuel. It's a hinge of history. When you read Samuel, you have to know the author is writing in such a way that he's trying to get us involved with the story. Don't read Samuel like history. Read Samuel like Shakespeare. Involve yourself in Samuel like you would a Spielberg movie, a drama like Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List where you're laughing and you're crying and you're weeping and could it get worse? Oh, but it does. And you're involved with that. Samuel is a story that's much like King Arthur and the hope of, of Camelot, about a great king who loves right, his kingdom. And, and the health of the kingdom is attached to the health of the soul of the great king. And it's a, it's a story that's thrilling. And there's, there's stories of, of valor and courage and truth and justice and scandal and betrayal. It's all in Samuel. It's a wonderful book. Don't read it like, a hit, like it's a history class. Read it like you're in a literature class. And that professor is trying to show you that there's meaning in the style of writing. And if you just read it for the history, sure, there's a guy. He's nine feet tall, and he's a bit of a bully, and his name is Goliath. You'll miss the emotion, and you'll miss the meaning, and unfortunately, you'll miss the beauty of this man's ability to write a great story. It's like a fairy tale, but it's true. Read it for the way it was written. Read it like a story. There's two literary techniques that Samuel likes to use so that you can see the deeper meanings. 
It's, it's a technique, right? It's a style. And the ones that are most obvious are a reversal of fortune and a contrast in characters. Reversal of fortune is the idea that um, for some people it's a comedy and some people it's a tragedy, that the bully finally gets beat up and the little small kid becomes the king. Reversal of fortune. And then contrast in character is when you see throughout this book that you're gonna, you'll, you'll witness a hero and a villain set right next to each other side by side so that you can see the stark contrast between the two and ask yourself, which one are you? And where do these men and women end up? And maybe I should choose to live accordingly. Okay. Reversal of fortune, contrast or juxtaposition of characters. It ha he wants us to understand the power of these tools so much that in the first two chapters, he gives us two splendid examples of reversal of fortune and, and the character. The first one we'll look at is reversal of fortune. In chapter 1, from 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, that's the way he's going to communicate the truth of the Bible. Samuel opens up in the first few sentences, and it's depressing and it's dark and it's showing kind of the mood of the whole country. When we are introduced to a, a lady, and her name is Hannah, and she's broken and hopeless because she can't have a child. And if that weren't bad enough, she has to share her husband with a woman that's very good at having children. You know, she's, she's, she's had a litter already, and not only is she running up the score, but she's using the power of her fertility to crush the spirit of Hannah. She understands that Hannah is loved by the husband more than she is, and so she's digging. She knows where she's weak and where she hurts the most, and she bullies her in this area. And so we, we see this in the first few sentences. I'll just read it from mine. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah, that's the husband, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the other was uh, Peniah. Uh, Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. But before we get too far, does that sound familiar to you? I mean, a, a man who loves his wife, but she can't have children, so he gets another wife who can, and they are at war with one another, and it's miserable. You're supposed to be reflecting back, you guys that read your Old Testament, you good Jewish readers, you're supposed to go, wait a minute, I've heard this. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah, yeah, and Hagar, and Hagar, that's a hinge of history as well. That's how God starts off his hinges of history, with a barren woman who's desperate. And that hinge of history was not the birth of a nation, but a birth of a people. And out of that miracle came the Jews. And here's, let's keep reading in verse 3. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up uh, from his town to worship and sacrifice Jehovah Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord. Let me stop and explain a little bit here because there's some significance in this sentence. One is that this is the first time the words, the Lord Almighty, are used in the Bible. Now, last week we saw, if you missed last week, you need to listen to last week for other for reasons that lead into the rest of this story. But one of the things we learned was when you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, that's not like Lord like a king. That's Lord Jehovah, the formal name of God. He's saying Yahweh Almighty. And the word Almighty is literally translated as the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts, we don't know what a host is, army. It's Jehovah 
the God of the armies, the God of the infinite armies. And the reason it comes up in Samuel is because of the context of the times in which they are living. This time in Israel's history, it's all about war. And they, the people group of Israel, they are surrounded by multiple enemies, but all of them have greater power. Israel can't even sharpen their own tools. And all sides surrounded by evil men and women with armies. And now, in this, in this period of time, there is a new evil empire on the rise of which they have no chance of, of winning. And these people want to annihilate them and wipe them from the planet. And so, in this book, we're going to see an introduction to a formal name of God with a title, a descriptive title, Jehovah God, Jehovah Almighty, the Lord of the infinite armies. We're going to need a God like that. So in verse 7, it continues, so it went on year after year, second time it said that. So it went on year after year, as often as Hannah's rival went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and could not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why, why don't you eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I, am I not more to you than ten sons? So here we are, already able to, adapt, or able to relate to a story that's thousands of years old. We see that Elkanah is a man, a godly man in a godless time. Elkanah is a godly man in a godless time. It says two times, year after year. In a time when the culture was against any sort of religious commitment, everyone did whatever they wanted in their own eyes. And even the religious organizations, the, the tabernacle and the men that are working it, we'll see later on, they are corrupt. They are greedy, and they are turned towards violence. It's, it's like the mob is running the tabernacle. And even in the context of the culture around them and the religious culture, year after year, Alcanon says, we're going to do what God says to do because that's what we do. He's an obedient man that wants to love God and follow God. I'm sure he stood out. And here's, here's the, kind of the point of our time together is that sometimes the times have to get so dark and desperate and push us so far down that all we can do is look up and we cry out to God. Maybe there's purpose in the pain, but sometimes times get so painful that all we can do is look up and we cry out a whole different way for God. But in those dark times, there is never a time so dark that a good man cannot thrive. There is never a time so dark that a good man cannot thrive. Elkanon is a godly man in a godless time. The other thing we, I can relate to anyway with, with Elkanon is he's a godly man that has marital skills lacking. He has some serious empathy gaps. He needs to take clear communications. He, there's some... He just does not understand his wife. He says, why do you keep weeping? Why do you not eat? Why are you so sad? Am I not better than 10 sons? You have me, honey. <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and her response is amazing, but they had to take it out of the Bible because... Because God knew we'd be reading it later in church, and it's like, mm. so, so they're just. So here's what I'm saying: you can be a godly man in a godless time and still be clueless as a husband. Can I hear an amen? amen. Yeah. 
That was, the guys were supposed to say amen. That is so funny. That is so good. <laughs> Did you say amen, Melinda? No, okay. <laughs> I had every expectation the men would say amen on that. Amen. Yeah, there you go. Thanks. The ladies got there first. <laughs> Here's the point. Hannah cannot be consoled. That's what the author is trying to say. She is sick unto death. The, 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 words that, the words that are describing her are to instill in us, as we're watching this like, like a Spielberg or reading it like Shakespeare, is to give her great pity. Our heart is going out to this woman who can't be helped. And, you know, we hate when bad things happen to good people, but, boy, our blood boils when we see bad things happening to good people and then the bullies come over and the rival year after year would continually remind her of her infertility while the rival was showing off all of her children. Knowing it's breaking this poor woman, we sit and watch and we, listen, here's what you can do to understand and appreciate the mood that we're trying to get. I just went and highlighted all the words that were descriptive of Hannah in the first few verses. Here they are. Her rival provoked her and irritated her till she wept and could not eat. Weeping, this is Hannah, downhearted, bitterness of the soul, wept much and prayed, misery, deeply troubled, pouring out my soul out of great anguish and grief. That's Hannah. So what do we know about this story? It is during a time of deep darkness in the culture and even in the tabernacle that there's this one family at least, there's this one family that year after year is trying to do this right. And this one family, it's not a happy family. They're... A year after year, when they go, that one year they go to the temple. It's like every week they'll go to church, and every week they fight all the way in. Oh, we can relate to that, too. Look how relatable it is. And, and here, that's the story here. That's what's happening. And, and she cannot eat, and she cannot worship. She can only cry. Can pain do that to you? Oh, yeah. Can pain bring you to a place where you can't, your body doesn't want to be fed and your soul doesn't want to talk to the Lord, right? The, the pain and anguish can do that. You stop praying, you stop caring, you stop worshiping. Wait, God doesn't move the mountain he's supposed to, doesn't part the sea that we were expecting him. And it can shut us, us down. We say, where's God now? Because there are times of pain that can bring us so far down that all we can do is look up. And the purpose, maybe, of that pain is to have us cry out in a whole new way. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it can do, because year after year, she suffered. Year after year, she grieved. Year after year, but not this year. This year, she prays a different prayer. This year, she prays to a different God. Verse 10, and in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to Jehovah, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Jehovah Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son and I will give him to Jehovah. 
for all the days of his life. And he'll have a vow that no razor will ever be used on his head. And Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard by anyone. In this anguish and in this bitterness and in this misery, she can't, she can't even speak. There's a, there's, a word, there's a sentence in Romans that says sometimes that we can be taken to this place of pain. We're, we're so far down, all we can do is look up, and we have this other type of experience with God. Deeper, you know, deep calls on to deep, and it says the Spirit, this is a graceful expression of what the Spirit will do for us, and the Spirit will intervene for us when our pain is too miserable for words. That's what's happening here. She has a pain too miserable for words, and the Spirit of God is just translating her prayers. And out of this, friends, out of this experience of wordless prayers is a hinge of history. Everything changes on this morning. She prays to the Lord of hosts. She is the first person to ever use this word in prayer. It's mentioned before, but that's by the narrator. Here's the first person to call upon Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of the infinite armies. She is desperate in need of something, and God gives her the historic event of being the first to call upon his name that way. It was not a general that calls upon that name for the first time. It was not David. He does, but not David as he's letting loose of a stone calling upon the the God of the armies. It is this whimpering, broken woman who's at the bottom of her life experiences, and she has one hope. She's praying to God, God Almighty, and she's hoping that he can stoop to hear a woman cry. Can this great God, who all of creation belongs to him, could he get so close to her that he could read her lips? That's all she can hope for. A God so big and a God so close. This moment changes her life, and this moment changes the world. Because while she was too hurt and pained to pray pray and worship her husband, Elkanon said, no, we have to go. We have to go to Shiloh, and we have to go. The thing that her pain kept her from worship, and her worship brought her out of pain. Because at this point, she is free. She was too hurt to worship, and now the worship distracts her from her hurt. Because in verse 18, it says, and she could eat again. And in verse 19, it says this, and they rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before Jehovah, and they went back to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. He had sexual relations with his wife, and Jehovah remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called that son Samuel, because Samuel means he heard me. He heard me. When Eli was watching me mumble, he couldn't hear me, and he was right there. He does stoop. He can get so close as to read lips. So she names him Samuel. And friends, this Samuel is bigger than her prayer ever hoped to be because she wanted a son, and she got a kingmaker. 
This is the man that will anoint the kings of Israel. This man, if you understand the icons of Old Testament history, there's not been a man like this since Moses, 400 plus years earlier. That's who her son is. That was the answer to her prayer because God's answers are way bigger than our doubts. That's what we're supposed to be learning in this great story because sometimes life gets so painful that it brings you down to a place where all you can do is look up so that, so that you will cry out in a whole new way. And those times, as dark as they are, there is never a time so dark that a righteous woman cannot thrive. That righteous woman is Hannah. If she prays the Almighty. What did Hannah learn? Hannah wants to tell us what she learned. In the chapter 2, the first 10 verses are what is called Hannah's prayer. And this is the definition of prayer in the Older Testament. She's going to pray a thing that becomes the, the national declaration of all of Israel. Not just for the book of First and Second Samuel. It serves as an outline and a a faith statement, but also all of Israeli history. It is such a dynamic prayer about the greatness of God and the way he works. It is the same prayer outline most people think that Mary prays, the famous Mary's Magnificat, after she, she learns about her miraculous inception and she will be the, father, the mother of Jesus. She prays a prayer in this outline. <laughs> this is a great prayer. I want you to listen. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to pray the prayer at the end. Listen for these two things. One, how Hannah understands the power of reversal of fortune. And two, that she worships a God, the whole earth is his. He's a sovereign God that runs things. I'll read a few verses. There is none holy like Jehovah. There is none besides him. There is no rock like our God. Jehovah kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he rises them up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor out of the dust and he lifts up the needy out of the ash heap and has them sit with princes and he, so that they might inherit a seat of honor. The pillars of the earth belong to Jehovah and he has set the world upon them. Last sentence, verse 10, it's on the screens. The adversaries of Jehovah shall be broken to pieces against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord Jehovah will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see the last part of that? The Lord Jehovah will judge. He will judge the earth with his anointed king. That phrase, and Jehovah will judge the earth with his anointed king. That is the first time the idea of a kingly Messiah has ever been penned. And it comes at the end of Hannah's prayer. The idea of a king Messiah is, is found here. It starts with her. That is a reversal of fortune. That's the theme of chapter 1, from 1 to 2, verse 10. A barren woman that gives birth to a kingmaker. A woman that's forgotten, and then she remembers. A woman who can't be heard, and she has a son named God hears. A woman without a child gives birth to a nation. God is the hero of this story. God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the infinite armies, he will make things right. 
That's part one. He's good at writing a story. The second way Samuel writes, and we're supposed to read, is this juxtaposition or contrast in characters. He's going to put two people side by side. And the characters he's going to put is this Samuel, who now is weaned. His mother Hannah promised when he's weaned, I'll bring him to the tabernacle and I'll let them raise him to be a priest. He's three to five years old. They've brought him and left him there. And now he will be contrasted with the decadence of those running the tabernacle, Eli and his sons. Watch the character in contrast, and maybe we can learn from it. Verse 11 says, and Elkanon went home from Ramah, but his boy Samuel ministered. He was ministering before the Lord under Eli. He's three to five years old. Next verse, verse 12. Eli's sons were very wicked men. They had no regard for Jehovah and the duties of as priests. They, were, they, were, they would violate with impunity the laws of God. The two sons of Eli, they would steal meat that they shouldn't have had as theirs. That's one. And then two, they would cook it any way they wanted. They couldn't care less what the rules of God were on how to sacrifice animals. They just liked their meat medium rare over a flame. And if you had problems with that as the person bringing the sacrifice, they had bouncers that would beat you until you submitted. They were mob bosses. Next verse. The sin of the young men were very great in Jehovah's sight, and they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Wow. Right there in the tabernacle. Next verse. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. He was a boy wearing a linen ephod. Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. He was an old soul in a young body untouched by the culture around him. Next verse. Now Eli was very old and he'd heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they, what? They slept with the women who were serving in the entrance of the, of the tent meeting. So, so they were stealing meat. They were cooking it any way they wanted. And now they're committing adultery. They're cheating on their wives with the women that, they're, that are having to work there as well. Perfect. Great. Evil never stays same unless it's dealt with. It just continues to grow. So Eli says to his sons, if a person sins against another, maybe God can mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against Jehovah, who's going to intercede for them? But the sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. This is high-handed sin. It means they don't care. Meanwhile, the very next sentence, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with Jehovah and the people. Judgment's coming. Next sentence. Now, a man of God comes to Eli and says to him, this is what the Lord Jehovah says. Why do you honor your sons more than, uh, more than me, fattening yourselves with the choice parts and every offering that's made by the people of Israel? Therefore, Jehovah, the God of Israel, declares this. The time is coming when I will cut short the, the, your length and your strength of your priestly house, and no one is going to ever reach old age in your house. Next sentence. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord Jehovah by assisting Eli. You know, what this, you know what this going back and forth is trying to show us? That there are some times in our culture that gets so dark, you can't see the sun from there. But in that darkness, there's never a time where a righteous boy cannot thrive. In the culture of the tabernacle, where it continues to descend into debauchery, there's this young boy 
that's thriving in the eyes of men and God himself. There is never a time so dark that a good person cannot thrive. Friends, this is a beautiful story, told well so that we can involve ourselves in it and we can learn. We can learn about how to live in dark times. And friends, we are living in dark times. And this passage says you're going to need two things to live in dark times. You're going to need faith and you're going to need grit. You don't need a lot of faith. You just need a little faith in the right God. Jehovah, God Almighty, the God of the armies. And grit, perseverance, endurance, year after year. They returned and did what they were supposed to. Samuel says, remember Hannah. Samuel says, remember Hannah's first prayer. That little woman who's whispering over in the quarter, and she's calling upon God Almighty, and she gives birth to a nation. With birth pangs of sorrow, she gives birth to what God wanted, a kingdom because she prayed to God Almighty, and she knew he was a transcendent God, that the earth belonged to him, and he ruled all things, even her body. And she hoped, and it turned out to be true, she hoped that he was a God of eminence. That meant he's close and intimate and able to change things. And when she was weeping and whispering, when she was moving her mouth, he could see that mouth, he could hear that, those words, that was the God that she was praying to. Remember Hannah, Samuel says, in her first prayer. And he says, remember Hannah in her second prayer. She didn't whisper that one. She cleared her throat and made sure everyone could hear that Jehovah God is the God of reversals of fortune. He's a God so powerful, he is king. And she wanted everyone to know, oh, those in power, you'll answer to your abuse of power. And those of you that are weak, you will be strong. And then in a way that only God can do in a time that we have to just only imagine, if you could just imagine ancient Near Eastern sexism, okay? Just uh, women are loved in the Older Testament but they're not on the same level uh, politically or in, in a lot of values. So the reason I say that is because this, this, this woman, Hannah, ends this glorious prayer and turns up the volume and says, and Jehovah will judge with his anointed king. And he gives a woman the ability and the privilege to say that phrase for the very first time in human history. He does that, you know. He likes when the lowly brag about him. I think it was a woman that announced the resurrection of that said king. It was the women that got to say he is risen. God is the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. A woman weeps, a nation is born, but God's the hero of this story. What would he do with your life? Whatever you let him.
But know this from this story. Wherever you've been, and no matter how far you're down, he can lift you up. And sometimes, sometimes there's purpose in pain, and it's to get us to look up and pray a prayer like we've never prayed before. Hannah, at the wall, whispering, groaning, weeping. Could the story get any worse? Oh, the story could get a lot worse. It could get a lot worse. There, in, inside of Israel, working the religious system is a racketeering group, a family mob. Outside of Israel, they're surrounded by many nations that want to absolutely evaporate them. And now, and now there's a new nation coming on the scene. And it's like nothing they'd seen before. And 12 separate little tribes will have no contest against them. They are the Philistines. And you can hear these orcs marching towards Israel in this period of time. This is not a good time for Israel. It's going to get worse. And if it weren't bad enough that the religious system is broken and the outside of Israel is being torn apart, and here come the Philistines, chapter 3, verse 1 says, And during this time the Lord did not speak, and there were very few visions. Now they're cut off from God. Why is that? Well, if no one's going to listen, then why keep talking? And so, well, they're surrounded. There's cancers from within. They're surrounded all around them. Here comes the Philistines, and it says God doesn't even talk anymore. He doesn't even give people dreams anymore. And then they're over by the tabernacle, working inside over by the Ark of the Covenant, is an eight-year-old boy who's working the night shift, and he's making sure the lampstand, the presence of the Lord, does not go out. And it's almost dawn. It's darkest right before dawn. And he's laying there on the ground, in and out of sleep. And then God, Jehovah, the God of the army, says, Samuel. And the boy wakes up and says, here I am. You'd better not miss next week. We'll find out what happens next. And that is what's called a cliffhanger. Let's pray. I'm praying Hannah's prayer. There's no better prayer. I'm just going to steal this one. My heart rejoices in Jehovah. Jehovah has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like Yahweh. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. So stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak about your arrogance. For Jeho Jehovah, Yahweh is our God and who knows what you have done, and he will judge your actions. You bow down and worship him. The bow of the mighty is broken. Those who stumbled are now strong. Those who fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman, she has seven children. And the woman who has many children, she is wasting away. 
Yahweh gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave and he raises some others up. Yahweh makes the poor and he makes the rich. He brings some down, he lifts some up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump and he sets them right there amongst the princes and he places them in a seat of honor for the earth belongs to Yahweh and we will worship him. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in the darkness and no one will succeed by their strength alone. Those who fight against Yahweh, they will be shattered. The thunders of heaven will reign against them. Yahweh will judge all of the earth through the power of his anointed king. Dear God Almighty, we are grateful we know that king. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us to know this, the deep, the glory of the God of Hannah, that we would live a life of faith in the greatness of who you are, the power that you have, and the way you make a life from ruin to adventure. Lord, what you did in Hannah's life, I'd ask that you would do in ours. Let us be surrendered like Hannah's will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.